0: Fidel and Rubenstein were fated to clash because they both thought that they had fathered the iPod. As Rubenstein saw it, he had been given the mission by Jobs months earlier, found the Toshiba disk drive, and figured out the screen, battery, and other key elements. He had then brought in Fidel to put it together. He and others who resented Fidel's visibility began to refer to him as Tony Baloney. But from Fidel's perspective, before he came to Apple, he had already come up with plans for a great MP3 player, and he had been shopping it around to other companies before he had agreed to come to Apple. The issue of who deserved the most credit for the iPod, or who should get the title Podfather, would be fought over the years in interviews, articles, web pages, and even Wikipedia entries. But for the next few months, they were too busy to bicker. Jobs wanted the iPod out by Christmas, and this meant having it ready to unveil in October. They looked around for other companies that were designing MP3 players that could serve as the foundation for Apple's work and settled on a small company named Portal Player. Fidel told the team there, This is the project that's going to remold Apple, and ten years from now, it's going to be a music business, not a computer business. He convinced them to sign an exclusive deal, and his group began to modify portal players' deficiencies, such as its complex interfaces, short battery life, and inability to make a playlist longer than ten songs. That's it! There are certain meetings that are memorable both because they mark a historic moment and because they illuminate the way a leader operates. Such was the case with the gathering in Apple's fourth-floor conference room in April 2001, where Jobs decided on the fundamentals of the iPod. There to hear Fidel present his proposals to Jobs were Rubenstein, Schiller, Ive, Jeff Robin, and marketing director Stan Ing. Fidel didn't know Jobs, and he was understandably intimidated. When he walked into the conference room, I sat up and thought, whoa, there's Steve. I was really on guard because I'd heard how brutal he could be. The meeting started with a presentation of the potential market and what other companies were doing. Jobs, as usual, had no patience. He won't pay attention to a slide deck for more than a minute, Fidel said. When a slide showed other possible players in the market, he waved it away. Don't worry about Sony, he said. We know what we're doing, and they don't. After that, they quit showing slides, and instead Jobs peppered the group with questions. Fidel took away a lesson. Steve prefers to be in the moment, talking things through. He once told me, if you need slides, it shows you don't know what you're talking about. Instead, Jobs liked to be shown physical objects that he could feel, inspect, and fondle so Fidel brought three different models to the conference room. Rubinstein had coached him on how to reveal them sequentially so that his preferred choice would be the pièce de résistance. They hid the mock-up of that option under a wooden bowl at the center of the table. Fidel began his show-and-tell by taking the various parts they were using out of a box and spreading them on the table. There were the 1.8-inch drive— LCD screen, boards, and batteries, all labeled with their cost and weight. As he displayed them, they discussed how the prices or sizes might come down over the next year or so. Some of the pieces could be put together, like Lego blocks, to show the options. Then Fidel began unveiling his models, which were made of styrofoam with fishing leads inserted to give them the proper weight. The first had a slot for a removable memory card for music. Jobs dismissed it as complicated. The second had a dynamic RAM memory, which was cheap but would lose all of the songs if the battery ran out. Jobs was not pleased. Next, Fidel put a few of the pieces together to show what a device with a 1.8-inch hard drive would be like. Jobs seemed intrigued. The show climaxed with Fidel lifting the bowl and revealing a fully assembled model of that alternative. I was hoping to be able to play more with the Lego parts, but Steve settled right on the hard drive option just the way we had modeled it, Fidel recalled. He was rather stunned by the process. I was used to being at Phillips, where decisions like this would take meeting after meeting with a lot of PowerPoint presentations and going back for more study. Next it was Phil Schiller's turn. Can I bring out my idea now? he asked. He left the room and returned with a handful of iPod models, all of which had the same device on the front, the soon-to-be-famous track wheel. I had been thinking of how you go through a playlist, he recalled. You can't press a button hundreds of times. Wouldn't it be great if you could have a wheel? By turning the wheel with your thumb, you could scroll through songs. The longer you kept turning, the faster the scrolling got, so you could zip through hundreds easily. Jobs shouted, That's it! He got Fidel and the engineers working on it. Once the project was launched, Jobs immersed himself in it daily. His main demand was simplify. He would go over each screen of the user interface and apply a rigid test. If he wanted a song or a function, he should be able to get there in three clicks. And the click should be intuitive. If he couldn't figure out how to navigate to something, or if it took more than three clicks, he would be brutal. There would be times when we'd rack our brains on a user interface problem and think we'd considered every option, and he would go, Did you think of this? said Fidel, and then we'd all go, holy shit! He'd redefine the problem or approach, and our little problem would go away. Every night Jobs would be on the phone with ideas. Fidel and the others would call each other up, discuss Jobs' latest suggestion, and conspire on how to nudge him to where they wanted him to go, which worked about half the time. We would have this swirling thing of Steve's latest idea, and we would all try to stay ahead of it, said Fidel. Every day there was something like that, whether it was a switch here, or a button color, or a pricing strategy issue. With his style, you needed to work with your peers, watch each other's back. One key insight Jobs had was that as many functions as possible should be performed using iTunes on your computer rather than on the iPod. As he later recalled, in order to make the iPod really easy to use, and this took a lot of arguing on my part, we needed to limit what the device itself would do. Instead, we put that functionality in iTunes on the computer. For example, we made it so you couldn't make playlists using the device. You made playlists on iTunes and then you synced with the device. That was controversial. But what made the Rio and other devices so brain-dead was that they were complicated. They had to do things like make playlists because they weren't integrated with the jukebox software on your computer. So by owning the iTunes software and the iPod device, that allowed us to make the computer and the device work together, and it allowed us to put the complexity in the right place. The most zen of all simplicities was Jobs's decree, which astonished his colleagues that the iPod would not have an on-off switch. It became true of most Apple devices. There was no need for one. Apple's devices would go dormant if they were not being used, and they would wake up when you touched any key. But there was no need for a switch that would go, click, you're off, goodbye. Suddenly everything had fallen into place. A drive that would hold a thousand songs, an interface and scroll wheel that would let you navigate a thousand songs, a firewire connection that could sync a thousand songs in under ten minutes, and a battery that would last through a thousand songs. We suddenly were looking at one another and saying, This is going to be so cool, Jobs recalled. We knew how cool it was, because we knew how badly we each wanted one personally. And the concept became so beautifully simple. A thousand songs in your pocket. One of the copywriters suggested they call it a pod. Jobs was the one who, borrowing from the iMac and iTunes names, modified that to iPod. The Whiteness of the Whale Johnny Ive had been playing with the foam model of the iPod and trying to conceive what the finished product should look like when an idea occurred to him on a morning drive from his San Francisco home to Cupertino. Its face should be pure white, he told his colleague in the car, and it should connect seamlessly to a polished stainless steel back. Most small consumer products have this disposable feel to them, said Ive. There is no cultural gravity to them. The thing I'm proudest of about the iPod is that there is something about it that makes it feel significant, not disposable. The white would be not just white, but pure white. Not only the device, but the headphones and the wires and even the power block, he recalled, pure white. Others kept arguing that the headphones, of course, should be black like all headphones, but Steve got it immediately and embraced white, said Ive. There would be a purity to it. The sinuous flow of the white earbud wires helped make the iPod an icon. As I've described it, there was something very significant and non-disposable about it, yet there was also something very quiet and very restrained. It wasn't wagging its tail in your face. It was restrained, but it was also crazy with those flowing headphones. That's why I like white. White isn't just a neutral color. It is so pure and quiet, bold and conspicuous, and yet so inconspicuous as well. Lee Clow's advertising team at TBWA Chiat Day wanted to celebrate the iconic nature of the iPod and its whiteness rather than create more traditional product introduction ads that showed off the device's features. James Vincent, a lanky young Brit who had played in a band and worked as a DJ, had recently joined the agency, and he was a natural to help focus Apple's advertising on hip, millennial-generation music lovers, rather than rebel baby boomers. With the help of the art director, Susan Ein Sagan, They created a series of billboards and posters for the iPod, and they spread the options on Jobs' conference room table for his inspection. At the far right end, they placed the most traditional options, which featured straightforward photos of the iPod on a white background. At the far left end, they placed the most graphic and iconic treatments, which showed just a silhouette of someone dancing while listening to an iPod its white earphone wires waving with the music. It understood your emotional and intensely personal relationship with the music, Vincent said. He suggested to Duncan Milner, the creative director, that they all stand firmly at the far left end to see if they could get jobs to gravitate there. When he walked in, he went immediately to the right, looking at the Stark product pictures. This looks great, he said. Let's talk about these. Vincent, Milner, and Clow did not budge from the other end. Finally, Jobs looked up, glanced at the iconic treatments, and said, Oh, I guess you like this stuff. He shook his head. It doesn't show the product. It doesn't say what it is. Vincent proposed that they use the iconic images, but add the tagline, one thousand songs in your pocket. That would say it all. Jobs glanced back toward the right end of the table, then finally agreed. Not surprisingly, he was soon claiming that it was his idea to push for the more iconic ads. There were some skeptics around who asked, how's this going to actually sell an iPod, Jobs recalled. That's when it came in handy to be the CEO." so I could push the idea through. Jobs realized that there was yet another advantage to the fact that Apple had an integrated system of computer, software, and device. It meant that sales of the iPod would drive sales of the iMac. That, in turn, meant that he could take money that Apple was spending on iMac advertising and shift it to spending on iPod ads, getting a double bang for the buck. A triple bang, actually, because the ads would lend luster and youthfulness to the whole Apple brand. He recalled, I had this crazy idea that we could sell just as many Macs by advertising the iPod. In addition, the iPod would position Apple as evoking innovation and youth. So I moved $75 million of advertising money to the iPod, even though the category didn't justify one hundredth of that. That meant that we completely dominated the market for music players. We outspent everybody by a factor of about a hundred. The television ad showed the iconic silhouettes dancing to songs picked by Jobs, Clow, and Vincent. Finding the music became our main fun at our weekly marketing meetings, said Clow. We'd play some edgy cut. Steve would say, I hate that. And James would have to talk him into it. The ads helped popularize many new bands, most notably the Black Eyed Peas. The ad with Hey Mama is the classic of the silhouettes genre. When a new ad was about to go into production, Jobs would often have second thoughts, call up Vincent, and insist that he cancel it. It sounds a bit poppy, or it sounds a bit trivial, he would say. Let's call it off. James would get flustered and try to talk him around. Hold on, it's going to be great, he would argue. Invariably, Jobs would relent, the ad would be made, and he would love it. Jobs unveiled the iPod on October 23, 2001, at one of his signature product launch events. Hint, it's not a Mac, the invitation teased. When it came time to reveal the product, After he described its technical capabilities, Jobs did not do his usual trick of walking over to a table and pulling off a velvet cloth. Instead he said, I happen to have one right here in my pocket. He reached into his jeans and pulled out the gleaming white device. This amazing little device holds a thousand songs, and it goes right in my pocket. He slipped it back in and ambled off stage to applause. Initially, there was some skepticism among tech geeks, especially about the $399 price. In the blogosphere, the joke was that the iPod stood for Idiots Price Our Devices. However, consumers soon made it a hit. More than that, the iPod became the essence of everything Apple was destined to be. Poetry connected to engineering— arts and creativity intersecting with technology, design that's bold and simple. It had an ease of use that came from being an integrated end-to-end system, from computer to firewire to device to software to content management. When you took an iPod out of the box, it was so beautiful that it seemed to glow, and it made all other music players look like they had been designed and manufactured in Uzbekistan. Not since the original Mac had a clarity of product vision so propelled a company into the future. If anybody was ever wondering why Apple is on the earth, I would hold up this as a good example, Jobs told Newsweek's Steve Levy at the time. Wozniak, who had long been skeptical of integrated systems, began to revise his philosophy. Wow! Wow! It makes sense that Apple was the one to come up with it, Wozniak enthused after the iPod came out. After all, Apple's whole history is making both the hardware and the software, with the result that the two work better together. The day that Levy got his press preview of the iPod, he happened to be meeting Bill Gates at a dinner, and he showed it to him. Have you seen this yet? Levy asked. Levy noted. Gates went into a zone that recalls those science fiction films where a space alien, confronted with a novel object, creates some sort of force tunnel between him and the object, allowing him to suck directly into his brain all possible information about it. Gates played with the scroll wheel and pushed every button combination while his eyes stared fixedly at the screen. It looks like a great product, he finally said. Then he paused and looked puzzled. It's only for Macintosh? he asked. Chapter 31 The iTunes Store I'm the Pied Piper Warner Music At the beginning of 2002, Apple faced a challenge. The seamless connection between your iPod, iTunes software, and computer made it easy to manage the music you already owned, but to get new music, you had to venture out of this cozy environment and go buy a CD or download the songs online. The latter endeavor usually meant foraying into the murky domains of file-sharing and piracy services. So Jobs wanted to offer iPod users a way to download songs that was simple, safe, and legal. The music industry also faced a challenge. It was being plagued by a bestiary of piracy services, Napster, Grokster, Nutella, Kazaa, that enabled people to get songs for free. Partly as a result, legal sales of CDs were down 9% in 2002. The executives at the music companies were desperately scrambling, with the elegance of second-graders playing soccer, to agree on a common standard for copy-protecting digital music. Paul Vittich of Warner Music and his corporate colleague Bill Radichel of AOL Time Warner were working with Sony in that effort, and they hoped to get Apple to be part of their consortium so a group of them flew to Cupertino in January 2002 to see Jobs. It was not an easy meeting. Viditch had a cold and was losing his voice, so his deputy, Kevin Gage, began the presentation. Jobs, sitting at the head of the conference table, fidgeted and looked annoyed. After four slides, he waved his hand and broke in. You have your heads up your asses, he pointed out. Everyone turned to Viditch, who struggled to get his voice working. "You're right," he said after a long pause. "We don't know what to do. You need to help us figure it out." Jobs later recalled being slightly taken aback, and he agreed that Apple would work with the Warner-Sony effort. If the music companies had been able to agree on a standardized encoding method for protecting music files, then multiple online stores could have proliferated. That would have made it hard for Jobs to create an iTunes store that allowed Apple to control how online sales were handled. Sony, however, handed Jobs that opportunity when it decided, after the January 2002 Cupertino meeting, to pull out of the talks because it favored its own proprietary format from which it would get royalties. You know Steve, he has his own agenda, Sony's CEO Nobuyuki Idei explained to Red Herring editor Tony Perkins. Although he is a genius, he doesn't share everything with you. This is a difficult person to work with if you are a big company. It is a nightmare. Howard Stringer, then head of Sony North America, added about jobs, Trying to get together would frankly be a waste of time. Instead, Sony joined with Universal to create a subscription service called PressPlay. Meanwhile, AOL Time Warner, Bertelsmann, and EMI teamed up with Real Networks to create MusicNet. Neither would license its songs to the rival service, so each offered only about half the music available. Both were subscription services that allowed customers to stream songs but not keep them, so you lost access to them if your subscription lapsed. They had complicated restrictions and clunky interfaces. Indeed, they would earn the dubious distinction of becoming number nine on PC World's list of the 25 worst tech products of all time. The magazine declared, The service's stunningly brain-dead features showed that the record companies still didn't get it. At this point, Jobs could have decided simply to indulge piracy. Free music meant more valuable iPods. Yet because he really liked music and the artist who made it, he was opposed to what he saw as the theft of creative products. As he later told me, From the earliest days at Apple, I realized that we thrived when we created intellectual property. If people copied or stole our software, we'd be out of business. If it weren't protected, there'd be no incentive for us to make new software or product designs. If protection of intellectual property begins to disappear, creative companies will disappear or never get started. But there's a simpler reason. It's wrong to steal. It hurts other people and it hurts your own character. He knew, however, that the best way to stop piracy, in fact the only way, was to offer an alternative that was more attractive than the brain-dead services that music companies were concocting. We believe that 80% of the people stealing stuff don't want to be. There's just no legal alternative, he told Andy Langer of Esquire. So we said, Let's create a legal alternative to this. Everybody wins. Music companies win. The artists win. Apple wins. And the user wins because he gets a better service and doesn't have to be a thief. So Jobs set out to create an iTunes store and to persuade the five top record companies to allow digital versions of their songs to be sold there. I've never spent so much of my time trying to convince people to do the right thing for themselves, he recalled. Because the companies were worried about the pricing model and unbundling of albums, Jobs pitched that his new service would be only on the Macintosh, a mere 5% of the market. They could try the idea with little risk. We used our small market share to our advantage by arguing that if the store turned out to be destructive, It wouldn't destroy the entire universe, he recalled. Jobs' proposal was to sell digital songs for 99 cents, a simple and impulsive purchase. The record companies would get 70 cents of that. Jobs insisted that would be more appealing than the monthly subscription model preferred by the music companies. He believed that people had an emotional connection to the songs they loved. They wanted to own Sympathy for the Devil, and shelter from the storm, not just rent them. As he told Jeff Goodell of Rolling Stone at the time, I think you could make available the second coming in a subscription model, and it might not be successful. Jobs also insisted that the iTunes store would sell individual songs, not just entire albums. That ended up being the biggest cause of conflict with the record companies, which made money by putting out albums that had two or three great songs and a dozen or so fillers. To get the song they wanted, consumers had to buy the whole album. Some musicians objected on artistic grounds to Jobs' plan to disaggregate albums. There's a flow to a good album, said Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. The songs support each other. That's the way I like to make music but the objections were moot. Piracy and online downloads had already deconstructed the album, recalled Jobs. You couldn't compete with piracy unless you sold the songs individually. At the heart of the problem was a chasm between the people who loved technology and those who loved artistry. Jobs loved both, as he had demonstrated at Pixar and Apple, and he was thus positioned to bridge the gap. He later explained, When I went to Pixar, I became aware of a great divide. Tech companies don't understand creativity. They don't appreciate intuitive thinking, like the ability of an A&R guy at a music label to listen to a hundred artists and have a feel for which five might be successful. And they think that creative people just sit around on couches all day and are undisciplined, because they've not seen how driven and disciplined the creative folks at places like Pixar are. On the other hand, music companies are completely clueless about technology. They think they can just go out and hire a few tech folks. But that would be like Apple trying to hire people to produce music. We'd get second-rate A&R people, just like the music companies ended up with second-rate tech people. I'm one of the few people who understands how producing technology requires intuition and creativity, and how producing something artistic takes real discipline. Jobs had a long relationship with Barry Shuler, the CEO of the AOL unit of Time Warner, and began to pick his brain about how to get the music labels into the proposed iTunes store. Piracy is flipping everyone's circuit breakers, Shuler told him. You should use the argument that because you have an integrated end-to-end system, from iPods to the store, you can best protect how the music is used. One day in March 2002, Shuler got a call from Jobs and decided to conference in Viditch. Jobs asked Vidich if he would come to Cupertino and bring the head of Warner Music, Roger Ames. This time Jobs was charming. Ames was a sardonic, fun, and clever Brit, a type, such as James Vincent and Johnny Ive, that Jobs tended to like. So the good Steve was on display. At one point early in the meeting, Jobs even played the unusual role of diplomat. Ames and Eddie Q, who ran iTunes for Apple, got into an argument over why radio in England was not as vibrant as in the United States. And Jobs stepped in, saying, We know about tech, but we don't know as much about music, so let's not argue. Ames had just lost a boardroom battle to have his corporation's AOL division improve its own fledgling music download service. When I did a digital download using AOL, I could never find the song on my shitty computer, he recalled. So when Jobs demonstrated a prototype of the iTunes store, Ames was impressed. Yes, yes, that's exactly what we've been waiting for, he said. He agreed that Warner Music would sign up, and he offered to help enlist other music companies. Jobs flew east to show the service to other Time Warner execs. He sat in front of a Mac like a kid with a toy, Vidich recalled. Unlike any other CEO, he was totally engaged with the product. Ames and Jobs began to hammer out the details of the iTunes store, including the number of times a track could be put on different devices and how the copy protection system would work. They soon were in agreement and set out to corral other music labels. Herding Cats The key player to enlist was Doug Morris, head of the Universal Music Group. His domain included must-have artists such as U2, Eminem, and Mariah Carey, as well as powerful labels such as Motown and Interscope Geffen A&M. Morris was eager to talk. More than any other mogul, he was upset about piracy and fed up with the caliber of the technology people at the music companies. It was like the Wild West, Morris recalled. No one was selling digital music, and it was awash with piracy. Everything we tried at the record companies was a failure. The difference in skill sets between the music folks and technologists is just huge. As Ames walked with Jobs to Morris's office on Broadway, he briefed Jobs on what to say. It worked. What impressed Morris was that Jobs tied everything together in a way that made things easy for the consumer and also safe for the record companies. Steve did something brilliant, said Morris. He proposed this complete system, the iTunes Store, the music management software, the iPod itself. It was so smooth. He had the whole package. Morris was convinced that Jobs had the technical vision that was lacking at the music companies. Of course, we have to rely on Steve Jobs to do this, he told his own tech vice president, because we don't have anyone at Universal who knows anything about technology. That did not make Universal's technologists eager to work with Jobs, and Morris had to keep ordering them to surrender their objections and make a deal quickly. They were able to add a few more restrictions to fair play the Apple system of digital rights management, so that a purchase song could not be spread to too many devices. But in general, they went along with the concept of the iTunes store that Jobs had worked out with Ames and his Warner colleagues. Morris was so smitten with Jobs that he called Jimmy Iavine, the fast-talking and brash chief of Interscope Geffen A&M. Iavine and Morris were best friends who had spoken every day for the past thirty years. When I met Steve, I thought he was our savior, so I immediately brought Jimmy in to get his impression, Morris recalled. Jobs could be extraordinarily charming when he wanted to be, and he turned it on when Iavine flew out to Cupertino for a demo. See how simple it is? he asked Iavine. Your tech folks are never going to do this. There's no one at the music companies who can make it simple enough. Iavine called Morris right away. This guy is unique, he said. You're right. He's got a turnkey solution. They complained about how they had spent two years working with Sony, and it hadn't gone anywhere. Sony's never going to figure things out, he told Morris. They agreed to quit dealing with Sony and join with Apple instead. How Sony missed this is completely mind-boggling to me. A historic fuck-up, Iavine said. Steve would fire people if the divisions didn't work together, but Sony's divisions were at war with one another. Indeed, Sony provided a clear counterexample to Apple. It had a consumer electronics division that made sleek products and a music division with beloved artists, including Bob Dylan. But because each division tried to protect its own interests, the company as a whole never got its act together to produce an end to end service. Andy Lack, the new head of Sony Music, had the unenviable task of negotiating with Jobs about whether Sony would sell its music in the iTunes Store. The irrepressible and savvy Lack had just come from a distinguished career in television journalism, a producer at CBS News and president of NBC, and he knew how to size people up and keep his sense of humor. He realized that for Sony, selling its songs in the iTunes store was both insane and necessary, which seemed to be the case with a lot of decisions in the music business. Apple would make out like a bandit, not just from its cut on song sales, but from driving the sale of iPods. Lack believed that since the music companies would be responsible for the success of the iPod, they should get a royalty from each device sold. Jobs would agree with Lack in many of their conversations and claimed that he wanted to be a true partner with the music companies. Steve, you've got me if you just give me something for every sale of your device, Lack told him in his booming voice. It's a beautiful device. But our music is helping to sell it. That's what true partnership means to me. I'm with you, Jobs replied on more than one occasion. But then he would go to Doug Morris and Roger Ames to lament, in a conspiratorial fashion, that Lack just didn't get it, that he was clueless about the music business, that he wasn't as smart as Morris and Ames. In classic Steve fashion, He would agree to something, but it would never happen, said Lack. He would set you up and then pull it off the table. He's pathological, which can be useful in negotiations. And he's a genius. Lack knew that he could not win his case unless he got support from others in the industry. But Jobs used flattery and the lure of Apple's marketing clout to keep the other record labels in line. If the industry had stood together, we could have gotten a license fee, giving us the dual revenue stream we desperately needed, Lack said. We were the ones making the iPods sell, so it would have been equitable. That, of course, was one of the beauties of Jobs's end-to-end strategy. Sales of songs on iTunes would drive iPod sales, which would drive Macintosh sales. What made it all the more infuriating to Lack was that Sony could have done the same, but it never could get its hardware and software and content divisions to row in unison. Jobs tried hard to seduce Lack. During one visit to New York, he invited Lack to his penthouse at the Four Seasons Hotel. Jobs had already ordered a breakfast spread, oatmeal and berries for them both, and was beyond solicitous, Lack recalled. But Jack Welsh taught me not to fall in love. Morris and Ames could be seduced. They would say, you don't get it, you're supposed to fall in love, and they did. So I ended up isolated in the industry. Even after Sony agreed to sell its music in the iTunes store, the relationship remained contentious. Each new round of renewals or changes would bring a showdown. With Andy, it was mostly about his big ego, Jobs claimed. He never really understood the music business, and he could never really deliver. I thought he was sometimes a dick. When I told him what Jobs said, Lack responded, I fought for Sony and the music industry, so I can see why he thought I was a dick. Corralling the record labels to go along with the iTunes plan was not enough, however. Many of their artists had carve-outs in their contracts that allowed them personally to control the digital distribution of their music or prevent their songs from being unbundled from their albums and sold singly. So Jobs set about cajoling various top musicians, which he found fun but also a lot harder than he expected. Before the launch of iTunes, Jobs met with almost two dozen major artists including Bono, Mick Jagger, and Sheryl Crow. He would call me at home, relentless, at ten at night, to say he still needed to get to Led Zeppelin or Madonna, Warner's Roger Ames recalled. He was determined, and nobody else could have convinced some of these artists. Perhaps the oddest meeting was when Dr. Dre came to visit jobs at Apple headquarters. Jobs loved the Beatles and Dylan, but he admitted that the appeal of rap eluded him. Now Jobs needed Eminem and other rappers to agree to be sold in the iTunes store, so he huddled with Dr. Dre, who was Eminem's mentor. After Jobs showed him the seamless way the iTunes store would work with the iPod, Dr. Dre proclaimed, Man, somebody finally got it right. On the other end of the musical taste spectrum was the trumpeter Wynton Marsalis. He was on a West Coast fundraising tour for jazz at Lincoln Center and was meeting with Jobs' wife, Lorene. Jobs insisted that he come over to the house in Palo Alto and he proceeded to show off iTunes. What do you want to search for? He asked Marsalis. Beethoven, the trumpeter replied. Watch what it can do. Jobs kept insisting when Marsalis' attention would wander. See how the interface works? Marsalis later recalled, I don't care much about computers and kept telling him so, but he goes on for two hours. He was a man possessed. After a while, I started looking at him and not the computer because I was so fascinated with his passion. Jobs unveiled the iTunes store on April 28, 2003, at San Francisco's Moscone Center. With hair now closely cropped and receding, and a studied, unshaven look, Jobs paced the stage and described how Napster demonstrated that the Internet was made for music delivery. Its offspring, such as Kazaa, he said, offered songs for free. How do you compete with that? To answer that question, he began by describing the downsides of using these free services. The downloads were unreliable, and the quality was often bad. A lot of these songs are encoded by seven-year-olds, and they don't do a great job. In addition, there were no previews or album art. Then he added, worst of all, it's stealing. It's best not to mess with karma. Why had these piracy sites proliferated then? Because, Jobs said, there was no alternative. The subscription services, such as Press Play and MusicNet, treat you like a criminal, he said, showing a slide of an inmate in striped prison garb. Then a slide of Bob Dylan came on the screen. People want to own the music they love. After a lot of negotiating with the record companies, he said, they were willing to do something with us to change the world. The iTunes store would start with 200,000 tracks, and it would grow each day. By using the store, he said, you can own your songs, burn them on CDs, be assured of the download quality, get a preview of a song before you download it, and use it with your iMovies and iDVDs to make the soundtrack of your life. The price? Just ninety-nine cents, he said, less than a third of what a Starbucks latte cost. Why was it worth it? Because to get the right song from Kazaa took about fifteen minutes rather than a minute. By spending an hour of your time to save about four dollars, he calculated, you're working for under the minimum wage. And another thing, with iTunes, it's not stealing anymore, it's good karma. Clapping the loudest for that line were the heads of the record labels in the front row, including Doug Morris sitting next to Jimmy Iovine in his usual baseball cap and the whole crowd from Warner Music. Eddie Q, who was in charge of the store, predicted that Apple would sell a million songs in six months. Instead, the iTunes store sold a million songs in six days. This will go down in history as a turning point for the music industry, Jobs declared. Microsoft We were smoked. That was the blunt email sent to four colleagues by Jim Alchin, the Microsoft executive in charge of Windows development, at 5 p.m. the day he saw the iTunes store. It had only one other line. How did they get the music companies to go along? Later that evening, a reply came from David Cole, who was running Microsoft's online business group. When Apple brings this to Windows, I assume they won't make the mistake of not bringing it to Windows, we will really be smoked. He said that the Windows team needed to bring this kind of solution to market, adding, That will require focus and goal alignment around an end-to-end service which delivers direct user value, something we don't have today. Even though Microsoft had its own Internet service, MSN, it was not used to providing end-to-end service the way Apple was. Bill Gates himself weighed in at 10.46 that night. His subject line? Apple's jobs again indicated his frustration steve jobs's ability to focus in on a few things that count get people who get user interface right and market things as revolutionary are amazing things he said he too expressed surprise that jobs had been able to convince the music companies to go along with his store this is very strange to me The music company's own operations offer a service that is truly unfriendly to the user. Somehow they decide to give Apple the ability to do something pretty good. Gates also found it strange that no one else had created a service that allowed people to buy songs rather than subscribe on a monthly basis. I am not saying this strangeness means we messed up. At least, if we did... So did Real and Press Play and MusicNet and basically everyone else, he wrote. Now that Jobs has done it, we need to move fast to get something where the user interface and rights are as good. I think we need some plan to prove that even though Jobs has us a bit flat-footed again, we can move quick and both match and do stuff better. It was an astonishing private admission. Microsoft had again been caught flat-footed, and it would again try to catch up by copying Apple. But like Sony, Microsoft could never make it happen, even after Jobs showed the way. Instead, Apple continued to smoke Microsoft in the way that Cole had predicted. It ported the iTunes software and store to Windows. But that took some internal agonizing. First, Jobs and his team had to decide whether they wanted the iPod to work with Windows computers. Jobs was initially opposed. By keeping the iPod for Mac only, it was driving the sales of Macs even more than we expected, he recalled. But lined up against him were all four of his top executives, Schiller, Rubenstein, Robin, and Fidel. It was an argument about what the future of Apple should be. We felt we should be in the music player business, not just in the Mac business, said Schiller. Jobs always wanted Apple to create its own unified utopia, a magical walled garden where hardware and software and peripheral devices worked well together to create a great experience and where the success of one product drove sales of all the companions. Now he was facing pressure to have his hottest new product work with Windows machines, and it went against his nature. It was a really big argument for months, Jobs recalled, me against everyone else. At one point he declared that Windows users would get to use iPods over my dead body. But still his team kept pushing. This needs to get to the PC, said Fidel. Finally, Jobs declared, Until you can prove to me that it will make business sense, I'm not going to do it. That was actually his way of backing down. If you put aside emotion and dogma, it was easy to prove that it made business sense to allow Windows users to buy iPods. Experts were called in, sales scenarios developed, and everyone concluded this would bring in more profits. We developed a spreadsheet, said Schiller. Under all scenarios, there was no amount of cannibalization of Mac sales that would outweigh the sales of iPods. Jobs was sometimes willing to surrender, despite his reputation, but he never won any awards for gracious concession speeches. Screw it, he said at one meeting where they showed him the analysis. I'm sick of listening to you assholes. Go do whatever the hell you want. That left another question. When Apple allowed the iPod to be compatible with Windows machines, should it also create a version of iTunes to serve as the music management software for those Windows users? As usual, Jobs believed the hardware and software should go together. The user experience depended on the iPod working in complete sync, so to speak, with iTunes software on the computer. Schiller was opposed. I thought that was crazy, since we don't make Windows software, Schiller recalled. But Steve kept arguing, if we're going to do it, we should do it right. Schiller prevailed at first. Apple decided to allow the iPod to work with Windows by using software from Music Match, an outside company. But the software was so clunky that it proved Jobs's point, and Apple embarked on a fast-track effort to produce iTunes for Windows. Jobs recalled, To make the iPod work on PCs, we initially partnered with another company that had a jukebox gave them the secret sauce to connect to the iPod, and they did a crappy job. That was the worst of all worlds, because this other company was controlling a big piece of the user experience. So we lived with this crappy outside jukebox for about six months, and then we finally got iTunes written for Windows. In the end, you just don't want someone else to control a big part of the user experience. People may disagree with me, but I am pretty consistent about that. Porting iTunes to Windows meant going back to all of the music companies, which had made deals to be in iTunes based on the assurance that it would be for only the small universe of Macintosh users, and negotiate again. Sony was especially resistant. Andy Lack thought it another example of Jobs changing the terms after a deal was done. It was, but by then the other labels were happy about how the iTunes store was working and went along, so Sony was forced to capitulate. Jobs announced the launch of iTunes for Windows in October 2003. Here's a feature that people thought we'd never add until this happened, he said waving his hand at the giant screen behind him. Hell froze over, proclaimed the slide. The show included iChat appearances and videos from Mick Jagger, Dr. Dre, and Bono. It's a very cool thing for musicians and music, Bono said of the iPod and iTunes. That's why I'm here to kiss the corporate ass. I don't kiss everybody's. Jobs was never prone to understatement. To the cheers of the crowd, he declared, iTunes for Windows is probably the best Windows app ever written. Microsoft was not grateful. They're pursuing the same strategy that they pursued in the PC business, controlling both the hardware and software, Bill Gates told Businessweek. We've always done things a little bit differently than Apple in terms of giving people choice. It was not until three years later, in November 2006, that Microsoft was finally able to release its own answer to the iPod. It was called the Zune, and it looked like an iPod, though a bit clunkier. Two years later, it had achieved a market share of less than 5%. Jobs was brutal about the cause of the Zune's uninspired design and market weakness. The older I get, the more I see how motivations matter. The Zune was crappy because the people at Microsoft don't really love music or art the way we do. We won because we personally love music. We made the iPod for ourselves. And when you're doing something for yourself or your best friend or family— You're not going to cheese out. If you don't love something, you're not going to go the extra mile, work the extra weekend, challenge the status quo as much. Mr. Tambourine Man Andy Lack's first annual meeting at Sony was in April 2003, the same week that Apple launched the iTunes store. He had been made head of the music division four months earlier, and had spent much of that time negotiating with Jobs. In fact, he arrived in Tokyo directly from Cupertino, carrying the latest version of the iPod and a description of the iTunes store. In front of 200 managers gathered, he pulled the iPod out of his pocket. Here it is, he said as CEO Nobuyuki Idei and Sony's North America head, Howard Stringer, looked on. Here's the Walkman killer. There's no mystery, Meat. The reason you bought a music company is so that you could be the one to make a device like this. You can do better. But Sony couldn't. It had pioneered portable music with the Walkman. It had a great record company and it had a long history of making beautiful consumer devices. It had all of the assets to compete with Jobs's strategy of integration of hardware, software, Devices and content sales. Why did it fail? Partly because it was a company, like AOL Time Warner, that was organized into divisions. That word itself was ominous, with their own bottom lines. The goal of achieving synergy in such companies by prodding the divisions to work together was usually elusive. Jobs did not organize Apple into semi-autonomous divisions. He closely controlled all of his teams and pushed them to work as one cohesive and flexible company, with one profit and loss bottom line. We don't have divisions with their own P&L, said Tim Cook. We run one P&L for the company. In addition, like many companies, Sony worried about cannibalization. If it built a music player in service that made it easy for people to share digital songs, that might hurt sales of its record division. One of Jobs' business rules was to never be afraid of cannibalizing yourself. If you don't cannibalize yourself, someone else will, he said. So even though an iPhone might cannibalize sales of an iPod, or an iPad might cannibalize sales of a laptop, that did not deter him. That July, Sony appointed a veteran of the music industry, Jay Samet, to create its own iTunes-like service called Sony Connect, which would sell songs online and allow them to play on Sony's portable music devices. The move was immediately understood as a way to unite the sometimes conflicting electronics and content divisions, the New York Times reported, That internal battle was seen by many as the reason Sony, the inventor of the Walkman and the biggest player in the portable audio market, was being trounced by Apple. Sony Connect launched in May 2004. It lasted just over three years before Sony shut it down. Microsoft was willing to license its Windows Media software and digital rights format to other companies just as it had licensed out its operating system in the 1980s. Jobs, on the other hand, would not license out Apple's Fair Play to other device makers. It worked only on an iPod. Nor would he allow other online stores to sell songs for use on iPods. A variety of experts said this would eventually cause Apple to lose market share, as it did in the computer wars of the 1980s. If Apple continues to rely on a proprietary architecture, the Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen told Wired, the iPod will likely become a niche product. Other than in this case, Christensen was one of the world's most insightful business analysts, and Jobs was deeply influenced by his book, The Innovator's Dilemma. Bill Gates made the same argument. There's nothing unique about music, he said. This story has played out on the PC. Rob Glazer, the founder of Real Networks, tried to circumvent Apple's restrictions in July 2004 with a service called Harmony. He had attempted to convince Jobs to license Apple's Fair Play format to Harmony, but when that didn't happen, Glazer just reverse-engineered it and used it with the songs that Harmony sold. Glazer's strategy was that the song sold by Harmony would play on any device, including an iPod or a Zune or a Rio, and he launched a marketing campaign with the slogan, Freedom of Choice. Jobs was furious and issued a release saying that Apple was stunned that Real Networks has adopted the tactics and ethics of a hacker to break into the iPod. Real networks responded by launching an internet petition that demanded, Hey Apple, don't break my iPod. Jobs kept quiet for a few months, but in October, he released a new version of the iPod software that caused songs bought through Harmony to become inoperable. Steve is a one of a kind guy, Glazer said. You know that about him when you do business with him. In the meantime, Jobs and his team, Rubinstein, Fidel, Robin, Ive, were able to keep coming up with new versions of the iPod that extended Apple's lead. The first major revision announced in January 2004 was the iPod Mini. Far smaller than the original iPod, just the size of a business card, it had less capacity and was about the same price. At one point, Jobs decided to kill it, not seeing why anyone would want to pay the same for less. He doesn't do sports, so he didn't relate to how it would be great on a run or in the gym, said Fidel. In fact, the Mini was what truly launched the iPod to market dominance by eliminating the competition from smaller flash drive players. In the eighteen months after it was introduced,